Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about research and the surprises and challenges that we encounter in the midst of it. Our first story today is from Eric Vance. It was recorded in August 2018 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was Insight. Okay, so um, my first uh, like assignment research, like freelance story, was kind of shitty, and I don't mean like I did a bad job or that it wasn't a very good topic. Like there was literally a lot of fecal matter in the story, and let me tell you about it. So after like months and months of of trying to convince um, a, uh, a an editor to give me a story, I finally got a major magazine to offer me a story in uh, that would send me out to, to do the reporting. And I was so excited, but I was also really, really nervous. Uh, the story was about a guy named Yasek Kozil who studies uh, volatile components of complex uh, fermentation matrices. In other words, he smells pig shit for a living. And I was really excited because, uh, because this was going to take me to Ames, Iowa. And... Uh, <laughs> Everyone loves Ames, Iowa. And this is the first time that I was going to, like, you know, uh, like go into a place and try to get the story and then come out after like three days. And I was really nervous because, you know, I didn't know if I could just go in and get the story. Like, how do you even do that? And I was especially excited because I had just proposed to my girlfriend who um, had really supported me emotionally and financially through this whole process of going after this dream of becoming a science writer. And now it was going to happen. So I book a flight to Omaha, Nebraska, and I fly out there. And, and it was only really when I landed that I learned that uh, Nebraska and Iowa are actually two different states. <laughs> so I rented a car and drove to Iowa. And as, as soon as I got out in, in Iowa, I smelled this chemical. It's actually a phenol. And this is a, it's a low vapor pressure chemical that basically sticks to anything it touches. And it's often called barnyard or uh, even band-aid. And um, basically, it sticks to like dust and then it floats for miles. And it's the first thing you smell when you come to a farm. It's this sort of sweet smell. And that's basically what Yasek 
Cozeal studies. Like that's his jam is these chemicals that he can sort of break out and figure out what's in them. And he's really good at it. Like he has this amazing nose. He could have been uh, designing perfumes for Christian Dior or like one of the best vintners in the country. I mean, he has this, he, you know, he can smell these really complex chemicals, but I mean, he doesn't make perfumes and he's not a vintner. I mean, he smells pig shit. And how good is he? He's so good that when you fart, he can tell you what you ate. <laughs> That's how good he is. And so we met, and he like brings me in his lab, and he has the most amazing lab I've ever seen. It's this incredible place. It's like all based around smell. So all of the markers are, of course, little smelly markers, and the students can like practice and see if they can like figure out what smell it is, which is actually kind of hard if you've ever tried to do it. It's like grape, maybe lime. I don't know. Um, and then he's got these like fume hoods, like in a normal lab, but these have these like like a like a little tube coming out of them, and they're emitting this smell that smells like farts. Because he's trying to reverse engineer farts. Because why not? It's awesome. And like it's just this wonderful, you know, all these little surprises around every corner. My favorite was this one little cabinet that you basically open up, and inside is all of the worst smelling things that he has ever isolated. <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but like in Atlanta, like the CDC has this vault of like all the worst like viruses and diseases on earth and stuff like that, right? This is like that, except for what? Like stank? I mean, this is, <laughs> this is like the Fort Knox of I guess ass. Like it's the <laughs> the worst thing you can ever imagine. I'm saying that this is an undergraduate campus. This is an unlocked cabinet. Like <laughs> how is this even still here? You know, I think of 30 things off the like right off my head. There's like, oh, that'd be great. You know, so many great pranks. Um, and in the back of this little cabinet, there's one little bottle, and all these bottles are sort of sealed, but one of them is a sealed bottle inside another sealed bottle. Inside another sealed bottle. And I was like, oh my god, what is that one? <laughs> And I go to, of course, I go to reach out and grab it. And he's like, ah, you know what? Don't, don't even touch that one. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And he's, it's ladybug taint. See, some of you guys are thinking the same thing I was, right? When you think you're ladybug taint, you're thinking, you know, the only thing taint I know of is, you know, area between the genitals and the asshole. It's the taint, you know? I didn't know ladybugs had that. And I was like, that's really cool. <laughs> but he says, no, no, that's not what ladybug taint is. <laughs> Turns out that ladybugs, anytime you see an animal that's red and black, uh, there's uh, it's a signal, don't eat me, I will mess you up. And in the case of ladybugs, it's this one chemical that basically is so strong, if you took a teaspoon of it and put it in an Olympic-sized swimming pool, you'd still be able to taste it. That's how strong it is. It's, it's, it's brutal. And um, basically, uh, when this chemical gets into a, a grape crush... Uh, the, it tastes like if one, if one ladybug gets in the grape crush, it tastes like a little bit like bell pepper, but if like two or three get in there, it's ruined or tainted. So ladybug taint, right? Really interesting. And so then he takes me to the pride and joy of his lab. Now this is the machine that basically allowed him to, you know, find ladybug taint and everything else that he's done in his laboratory. And, uh, it's called a multidimensional gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, olfactometer I and mean, we've all seen it right <laughs> got two of them in your basement right now um and uh this is this amazing device it basically takes a chemical breaks it up into pieces then puts down one of two little tubes one goes into a mass spec which tells you what's in it and the other one goes to a little cup over your nose 
And so you can sort of like, you know, smell every little piece. And what's interesting about this is that when it comes to smell, we don't really have a lot of words to describe the smells that are around us. I mean, you think about, like, we've got lots of words for shapes and sounds, but how many words do we have for smells? The only one I can come up with is musty. But like everything else is, you, it smells like something. So there's this whole wheel of different things that he uses, like uh, with smells like um, taco shell or wet cardboard or mushrooms. And so the first thing he puts in there is um, is is wine. He puts like a wine sample in there. And we all have that friend who um, like drinks wine and goes like, "Oh, is that is that summer squash?" <laughs> Mm, I'm getting a little bit of aged wet leather. Are you getting that? And they're obnoxious, right? We hate that guy. But it turns out he's right. All of those chemicals, oh, come on. There's a few of you out there. Uh, it turns out that he's right, actually, though. He or she is right. There are these chemicals in the wine that you can actually break up and you can smell them one at a time. And that's what the olfactometer does, is he lets you smell them. And so, but I don't really have the words for that. So what I'm smelling is, oh, uh, is sixth grade camp. My first girlfriend. Uh, oh, the house I grew up in. You know, because the part of your brain that processes smells is right next to the part of the brain that processes memory. And so I'm having this great, these great moments. It's wonderful. If you guys ever can get a chance to use an olfactometer like this, I highly recommend it. It's amazing. So then he puts in the, uh, the star of the show, which is pig shit. And he was a little worried that, like, I wouldn't get all the nuances of the pig shit. So rather than, like, putting it in for 10 minutes the way he normally would over the pig shit, he puts it in overnight. So you can get like the full brunt of the of his favorite matrix, um, and so uh, uh, it's hard to. Well, the first few smells actually are kind of like um, wine. You, you still get that sort of mushroom, and you get a little bit of the you know wet cardboard or whatever, because it's it's they're both fermentation processes. One's organized, the other one's not. But I mean they're kind of the same. And then you get to the business end of pig shit. <laughs> And if you've never experienced the business end of pig shit, it's the sulfates. And God, how, do, how do I describe this? It's a little like having a manure truck drive over you and then back up over you again to see if you're okay and then drive up over you again and then back again and over again, just sort of over and over. It's a little like if you've ever been on the metro and you see that there's that, that one person who's like, you can smell him from the other side of the car. Imagine taking his underwear, putting him over your head and then... Sticking your head inside one of those campground like uh, toilets and just letting the experience flow over you wave after wave like that's what it's like just shoving these these smells right up into your brain and uh, the worst thing about the whole thing is um, like I said these things have low vapor pressure that's why they stick to dust and you can smell them far away um, it also sticks to the inside of your nose so that everything you eat for three days or everything you smell tastes like pig shit. And uh, I step out from this thing, and uh, I'm a little scarred, and I sit down with Yasik. And the great thing about Yasik is that the whole time I'm there, he can't figure out why I'm writing about him, because he thinks he has the most boring job in the world. And uh, and I've, I talked to him for a while, and I, I get on the plane, and um, I have a, a shit-tasting meatloaf <laughs> and a shit-tasting cocktail to sort of wash it down. And, uh, and it, it occurs to me that I, I've done it, you know, that in order to do this job right, you have to completely immerse yourself in the story. I mean, you have, and I, I realized that I had like literally gone up to my nose in this story in order to find the narrative that I wanted and that I could do this and that this was something that, you know, I'd like reached my goal and this was my, my dream. And I, 
I get off the plane and there to meet me is my, my girlfriend, now wife, who's, uh, who's there to pick me up. And, you know, and I've had this amazing experience and, and I walk up to her and I, and she says, how was the trip? And I said, it was, you know, you smell a little like shit. Thank you. That was Eric Vance. Eric is an award-winning science journalist based in Baltimore. Before becoming a writer, he was, at turns, a biologist, a rock climbing guide, an environmental consultant, and an environmental educator. He graduated in 2006 from UC Santa Cruz science writing program and became a freelancer as soon as possible. His work focuses on the human element of science, the people who do it, those who benefit from it, and those who do not. He has written for the New York Times, Nature, Scientific American, Harper's, National Geographic, and a number of other local and national outlets. His first book, Suggestible You, is about how the mind and body continually twist and shape our realities. While researching the book, he was poked, prodded, burned, electrocuted, hypnotized, and even cursed by a witch doctor, all in the name of science. And you can hear about many of those experiences in Storic Lighter Stories, including the one that we have up next, which I'll explain in a moment. Before we move on to the next story, I want to remind everybody that Story Collider is currently holding online storytelling workshops. I believe we still have a couple spots open in our September workshop if you act fast. You can find out more about that in our upcoming shows and slams at storycollider.org. Our next story today is from our executive director, Liz Neely, who we are sadly saying goodbye to on Monday. We wanted to release this story that she told at one of our online shows a few months ago as a send-off. And here's a little added bonus. Eric Vance, our previous storyteller in this episode, is actually a character in this story. Did I just blow your mind? <laughs> so, here we go. Our next story today is from Liz Neely. It was recorded online in May 2020 in Liz's living room in Washington, D.C. The theme that night was One in a Million. So, it turns out that the hypnosis lab, it's not really a lab at all. It's, it's an office. It has a comfy chair and the blinds are drawn, but that's, that's pretty much it. I, I'm here because my friend Eric is writing a book about pseudoscience and false memories, placebos. And he's been running around having adventures because that's the kind of person he is. He's even managed to get himself cursed by a brujo. And I'm the research assistant, so I'm doing what I'm good at, which is reading papers. I'm digging into the scientific literature to understand, is there any research behind all these incredible claims of how the brain works and how powerful it is? But I've spent at this point like six hours at the UW uh, Regional Trauma Center watching Eric go through a series of tests he's getting experimented on, and nothing has happened. I'm, I'm bored. And, like, it's important. I, I should be excited to be here because, you know, I've heard reports about how clinical hypnosis can do incredible things, like burn victims who are just screaming in agonizing pain. They get hypnotized and boom, like, they, no pain. They can scrub their wounds out. Um, but there's no patients here. 
it's just me watching Eric and I'm watching him struggle and, you know, fidget and fail. And all I can think is, I could do so much better. <laughs> like, st <laughs> strap me in, measure my brain. Like, I want the electrodes. Like, I want to, like, measure, me science me up. <laughs> um, but that's not my job. I don't get to participate in this trip. I am just supposed to be observing, recording, and, um, and, and it's boring. So we've been in this hypnosis session for more than half an hour at this point, and uh, Dr. Patterson brings the session to a close, brings Eric out of the hypnotic trance he'd put him into, and kind of just says like, well, that really, nothing happened. Eric agrees he didn't feel anything. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I know nothing happened. I have half an hour of the world's most boring videotape that I've been filming this whole time, and my arm hurts and I'm, I'm i'm disappointed right because like i'm i'm here to see extraordinary things i had hoped um and i feel like a deeper sense of disappointment too like i had worried that this was pseudoscience that it was bullshit uh and maybe it was right like science doesn't happen if the experiments don't war work while you're watching them right hmm. So I'm packing up and thinking like, oh, well, this was a waste of a day. But then Dr. Patterson pauses and he looks at me and goes, well, what if we tried on Litz? And I'm like, it is. I'm so ready. It's my moment. <laughs> Here we go. Finally. So Eric and I swap places. I sit in the comfy chair. Dr. Patterson starts talking to me in his very soothing, hypnotic voice. And I'm jazzed because like, He's a serious researcher. He's a big shot, right? He's faculty, both in surgery and psychology. I want to impress him. And I also feel like I'm well like well equipped to impress him because I'm thinking about the time like I was bragging that I can drop my heart rate on demand. And the guy at the bar was like, no, you can't. I was like, yes, I can. And he slapped his eye watch on me. And then I dropped my heart rate on demand and got a gin and tonic out of that. So, but <laughs> so science. So Dr. Patterson begins by saying that he's going to induce a hypnotic trance in me and that he, that I may not notice anything at all, that I might just, it may feel like nothing at all is happening. And what's important is that I feel relaxed, but he'll, he doubts that I will notice anything. But what he would like me to do is to notice if anything changes for me. And I'm thinking, I'm alert. I'm ready to notice. I'm a scientist. Like, this is what I do. I notice things. Let's go. So Dr. Patterson asks me to imagine a staircase. And he says, as I count down the stairs, you'll step down that staircase in your mind. And it will be easy. And just notice yourself and how you're feeling. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a sleep app that does exactly this. Like, I've done my homework. Let's go. And so Dr. Patterson starts starts the count and he says, I'm going to begin. One, one step down. You're feeling relaxed. Two, two steps down. Three, three steps down. Notice that you feel calm and relaxed. That's good. And I'm playing along. I'm like, okay, cool. Waiting to, for something to happen. I'm very relaxed and I don't want to interfere with this experiment. So I'm not trying to judge it. But I'm like just checking in, like, can I, can I are my sensory systems working? 
right? I can hear the scratching of Eric's pen on the notebook. So I'm like, cool, cool. Everything's good. And Dr. Patterson leads me deeper, four, four steps, five, five steps deeper and deeper. And at this point, he asks me to take my right hand and, and raise it, just to lift it off the arm of the chair and let it hover an inch in space. And I'm not supposed to do anything with it. I'm not supposed to voluntarily control it. But he asks me to imagine a string connected to my wrist that attaches to a helium balloon and that my arm will feel perhaps very light as I relax. And I think, I know what's happening. This <laughs> is this, this is a tool in hypnosis. It's supposed to, it's a dissociative tool, right? The idea is that both by suggesting to me that my hand's not under my own control, but that some other force is lifting it, um, that that will deepen my own hypnotic trance. But also, it's a cue for the doctor. So he can tell if my hand is lifting that I'm deeper in the trance, right? So I'm, I'm sitting there feeling good. And I remember that this thing is called an idiomotor reflex. And I'm like, if I can remember the word idiomotor reflex, clearly I am not hypnotized. So <laughs> we're fine, right? <laughs> and so I play along, I notice, and we just keep going down the steps and six, seven, eight steps down, nine steps, ten steps. It's soothing. It's relaxing. I'm noticing. But I'm also... I. Personally, I don't have a busy little monkey brain. Um, I'm not judging. And I definitely don't want my brain to inter interrupt the experiment. So I'm just noticing. Dr. Patterson talks to me about, oh, like, remembering and forgetting. And he says that nothing really matters in this experiment except how relaxed and comfortable I feel. And then, you know, we don't have that much time. We've already been in this experiment for a long time. It's time to turn around and go back up the stairs. And we start doing. So he's counting up now. And he says, 10, 9, 8. You know, there's no rush. There's plenty of time. I'm still noticing. Nothing's happening. 7, 6. And his voice is getting louder. I notice his voice getting louder. And he says that when I awaken from my hypnotic trance, that I will feel alert and refreshed. Sounds nice. Uh, and he says that I also might feel surprised. That when I come to, I might feel ready to be surprised. And I'm just thinking like, well, no, I'd be surprised if I'm surprised by anything because I have been noticing and observing this whole time and I'm very relaxed, but nothing's happened. And then, so he's saying, you know, four or five, Liz, you can put your hand down. And I do. And then there's this pause and he says, Liz, you can put your hand all the way down. And I think, what? You know, here's my hand. It's hovering just an inch over the arm of the chair, and I put it down. And then all of a sudden, it, like, it hits me. My hand is up. It's up here. It's been up here the whole time. What the hell? I have, How did I not notice this? And But my eyes are still closed, and I'm not all the way awake yet. And so I force, I force my hand all the way down, but because I think if there's like this split second where it feels like I'm going to put my hand through my leg. I'm thinking, what the hell? And he says, three, two, one, you're awake. You're awake and you're alert and you're relaxed and happy. And I'm thinking, I'm awake and I'm alert. I am not happy. What <laughs> just happened? 
what is this? And he laughs and he congratulates me and he says, congratulations, you are highly suggestible. And this is the word he uses, suggest, suggestible. And I'm just like, what? He tells me I'm part of the 10% of the population that is highly suggestible, which means it's really easy to hypnotize me. And I'm backpedaling really quickly because while I was in the trance, I was thinking, hoo-hoo, I have such a powerful brain, I can't be hypnotized. And now I'm thinking, ha-ha, I'm so good at meditation that maybe I'm really easy to hypnotize. And I try and tell him this, like, this is my hypothesis. And he listens, he's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, this idea that mindfulness and, med- and hypnosis might be somehow related, but yeah, that's not, it doesn't work like that at all. <laughs> and he goes on to tell me that I shouldn't feel bad, that we say suggestible but that sounds like gullible, like it's something you wouldn't want to be. But he says he thinks of it more as like a strength or a skill. And turns out, well, it's really handy to have this particular skill. I can hypnotize myself so I don't feel pain and manage to do things like get an IUD or get all four of my wisdom teeth pulled out with no pain medication, no problem, which is awesome. But yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. But here's the thing. He also tells me that with this remarkable skill I have, uh, that I still should not go to any circuses or stage performances where professional hypnotists are doing like stage work. Because get this, he says that they will be able to see me, that they will recognize me in the crowd and that I'm susceptible to them. And I'm like, wait, they can rec- they can see me? He says something maybe about how much white shows around my eyes when I look up. And I'm just thinking, well, I can't see them. I can't, like, identify a hypnotist. This is, feels unfair. But, <laughs> but really, I think when it, when it all comes down to it, I, was, I pride myself on being a science person. I think rigorously. And I had wanted to see something remarkable, something that science struggles to explain. But in terms of, like, being the thing... That science struggles to understand. I don't like that as as much, for real. But if I ever have the opportunity um, to go in and get tested, like be a part of experiments again, I am so ready for that. Like science, this brain of mine, I want to understand. You know, give me all the tests. Because, you know, if you give me a test, I'm pretty sure I'm going to ace it. <laughs> that was liz neely liz has been the executive director of story collider for five years and co-host of our weekly podcast she says she is not a naturally gifted storyteller but she came into the field the hard way reading research papers on narrative and science communication She started her career as a marine biologist, and her first job was to support community-based projects in Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Learning firsthand that science belongs to everyone changed everything. She misses the ocean these days, but loves getting to think about all different kinds of science now. We're so grateful to Eric and Liz for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as, for the next few days anyway, Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Seringhollem, Shane Hanlon, Nissa Greenberg, and me, Aaron Barker. <laughs>
The podcast is produced by our podcast team, including Jen Chan and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Beer Baron and our online platform, Crowdcast, for hosting these shows, and to Liz for everything she has contributed to Story Collider and taught us over these past five years. Thanks for listening. 